This is Nick Redding, and you're listening to PreserveCast, a podcast with a worldwide listenership that explores the broad world of preservation from every angle, from drones to mudlarking and everything in between. Now, let's get preserving. On this week's PreserveCast, we're talking with Charles Henry, the president of the Council on Library and Information Resources, CLEAR, a nonprofit organization that works with libraries, cultural institutions, and higher learning communities to improve research, teaching, and learning environments through the digitization of preservation of cultural heritage. Charles will be sharing the threat that climate change poses on cultural heritage, along with other threats, and the work that CLEAR is doing to address those. All that and more on this week's PreserveCast. This is Nick Redding. You're listening to PreserveCast. And today we're excited to be talking with Charles Henry, who is the president of the Council on Library and Information Resources, which is a nonprofit that works with libraries and others um, to do a lot of different things and, and particularly focused on um, digitization and preservation of cultural heritage uh, among many priorities. But we're going to talk all about that. But um, Charles, before we get into the work of the council, um, you know, we like to get to know folks that we're talking to. So where'd you grow up and what was your your path to working in this field of of uh, of libraries and preservation and all that good stuff? Oh, um, well, thank you. Nick. Thanks for this opportunity. It's a great pleasure to uh, to to be here today and to talk about these uh, these vitally important issues. Um, the, I grew up all over the place, and uh, my father was a government worker, and we moved about every three or four years. So my uh, youth was spent in probably about six or seven different states across the U.S. Um, so I got to meet a lot of people, got to uh, uh, learn uh, about very different school systems <laughs> and very different approaches to um to to living a lot of different perspectives uh you know with uh, crammed into you know 12 or 12 about 15 years um 15 early years so i think that was in in some ways formative um it's uh, that kind of exposure as a as a kid um is is fairly unusual and i'm actually grateful for it so um and it uh i think it uh it rounds you out in ways I say I've always um, envied uh, at times people who could you know, were able to live and and thrive in a single environment over fifteen or twenty years. But uh, the the uh, that kind of eclectic nomad existence has uh, has its virtues as well. Um, I I came to this profession uh, into uh, working in libraries and archives. Um, Somewhat by accident, um, I was a, a PhD student uh, at Columbia and um, had dreams like so many of my colleagues of um, finishing up my research and going out and teaching and being a scholar for, for, for my career. And this was back in the 1980s, late 80s, early 90s. And they're really... Um, there weren't any jobs, very, very few job opportunities. And I had been working uh, with Pat Batten, who was the university librarian at Columbia at the time. And we'd been working on various projects, mostly focused on the new technology 
uh, the arrival of uh, of desktops and personal computing and uh, how that might affect the library, how that might affect research, how the faculty and students would be learning differently, doing research in new ways. And uh, it was through Pat's uh, encouragement that I applied and applied for and, and got the job of uh, the director of the humanities division of the Columbia University Libraries. And that was the start. So it was uh, a matter of serendipity, happenstance, friendships, and uh, also a really um, uh, genuine uh, feeling of intrigue uh, and curiosity about uh, this new, at the time, this new digital world and its implications. So, well, I guess... Your your position as a president of the Council of Library and Information Resources, is that now your day job? Um, and talk to us about what the council is. Yeah, yeah it's my day job. It uh, has been for uh, a little over uh, almost 13 years, I guess. And it, it's a kind of it represents a, a somewhat natural arc, I guess, from working in libraries at uh, Columbia and then Vassar, uh, then Rice University and then on to the council. Uh, and the council uh, allows me and my staff to have a kind of wider view and looking out over the landscape in, in more broader terms and more encompassing ways. Um, the council's been around about 65 years. It started out in the 1950s um, in a uh, uh, a number of uh, librarians got together and museum folks got together and they were um, concerned, and this is about 1957, uh, concerned at just this incredible proliferation of information. And that included microform and microfiche, television, radio, books, journals, uh, libraries at the time, academic libraries were uh, beginning a, um, uh, a buying spree, if you will, um, really uh, picking up um, very large numbers of of new books, new titles, new collections, and it was uh, at this point that these folks felt the founders of the council felt that there was not enough coordination about this proliferation of of information. There was not um, there there was not enough uh, foresight uh, of how to manage all this uh, all this knowledge. And where they were concerned about the redundancy of of knowledge, they were concerned about the costs of of hundreds and even thousands of of universities and colleges duplicating each other's collections, and they they were just fundamentally concerned about how do you access all this. So it's it's interesting. It's been sixty plus years since then, and. The the media of the information has changed, certainly, but the problems persist. It's still a uh, tsunami of information that's often very difficult to access. There's a lot of great, great materials and resources that are hidden, that are difficult, if not impossible, to access. And so here we are, and we're, we're still uh, wrestling with these issues and still working with our constituents on how to um, better manage um, and make uh, this this uh, uh, incredible and unprecedented knowledge uh, more useful and and uh, with greater purpose. It would seem like the the challenge has actually only gotten worse. 
You know, I mean, it's it's funny yeah. you've been around for 60 years and I'm sure some some aspects of it have been resolved or, or at least there's plans for how to handle some of it. But in terms of just the explosion of knowledge, I mean, it's funny, probably 60 years ago, they couldn't have even dreamed of how much is at our fingertips and how to organize and systemically preserve and approach that in the right way. I mean, it seems it almost seems insurmountable. I th I think in basically it is insurmountable, and uh, it's uh, and you're right. That if you go back into the fifties, I don't think there's there's anyone who would have you know foreseen this uh, exponential increase in information. You know, just look at what we have today. We still have the the books. We still have uh, the journals. We also have a mountain of data that's accumulated every day, every hour, every minute. And we also have uh, the born digital uh, information that was uh, non-existent back in 1957. And I remember several years ago, probably about 10, 15 years ago, Peter Lyman at the uh, California University of California, Berkeley, and some colleagues uh, began a, uh, a, an annual assessment of information that was generated. Uh, this is probably back in the 90s. And uh, even then, there was a couple of years, I think, that where digitally uh, more information was created uh, that particular year than in the entire history of of um, human information creation. So it was, it, and I'm, it's well beyond that another kind of exponential leap, leap today. So it's uh, what we have, what we, what we are confronting, what we, what we face um, certainly doesn't have precedent, but uh, it also, uh, I think, uh, puts our imagination to a, um, uh, a, a very high level of, of how to, how to deal with all this, how to compensate for, for this. And in the end, I think we, we, we can. We've got a lot of this information will be lost, a lot we have to let go. Uh, and there, thereby, many important decisions and priorities are uh, required. So, you know, among the many challenges um, in sort of organizing data, figuring out who's going to collect what and not to duplicate and all those sorts of things. <clears throat> then you have the potential for losing things, obviously, which we've right. kind of touched on. And climate change is a huge component of that. Um, you know, based on what you've just described so far, some people listening might be like, well, wait, how does climate change, you know, factor into this where you're trying to organize libraries and research institutions and you know, figuring out how to preserve and not duplicate data. Where does climate change fit in and, and how big of an issue is it for the kind of work that you do? For the work that uh, the, the council does, the CLEAR does, climate change is the most uh, important factor now. And it's dismaying to look around and see how slowly the impact of climate change, or even the reality of climate change, is is acknowledged. Um, to, to put it in fairly stark terms, uh, we we are at risk of losing our habitable planet. That to me, there is there is no doubt about that. When you look at the effects of climate change on the cultural heritage, 
This would include museums and galleries and archives and libraries, um, and educational institutions around the world. The last figure I saw was something like 98% of our cultural institutions will be negatively affected by climate change in, in some degree. And that includes the more um, uh, uh, flagrant, I guess, um, uh, destructions of, of desertification, um, wildfires, flooding, um, the the kind of displacement that certain climate uh, change effects will, will uh, incur, the diaspora, we're looking at possibly uh, over 100 million people displaced in the next 50 years with the, their migration uncertainty and their, their new homeland uncertain. And when you think about this from a cultural uh, perspective, a cultural heritage perspective, our legacy um, is profoundly under under threat. And we we see those effects, um, I think, more now than we may have five years ago. But the accumulating effects over the next 30, 40, 50 years, I think, is also difficult uh, to imagine. With that loss, the potential loss, um, we really need to get, we are, as my council and other cultural institutions really need to get um, together uh, and develop plans, I think, in a much more accelerated way than we than we have been. And it's it's not just um, you know museums with priceless artifacts or libraries with with rare materials and and books uh, and um, manuscripts and and other kinds of cultural documentation that's at risk. The physical artifacts around the world are are certainly threatened by this. Um, and it, it's not just remote um, and uh, areas of, of, of less development. Uh, I was reading, I think it was about a year ago, that uh, the Smithsonian in Washington, D.C. is looking at the uh, incursion of the Potomac River uh, into some of its lower levels. Um, this is one of the best managed, best run, uh, and um, wealthiest uh, institutions in the United States. And it, too, is being threatened by, in this case, rising uh, uh, watershed and an incursion of water into uh, in, into its uh, into the buildings. So I, every every institution will at some point be be touched by this. And those are the tangible cultural objects and aspects. When you look at diaspora of tens, if not hundreds of millions of people, the culture that these um, populations represent can be less tangible, too. It's ritual, it's language itself, um, it's performance, it's song, um, it's various kinds of, of religious practices uh, that are largely oral and passed down. This these aspects of culture are also under threat. So it's a um, it's cataclysmic, um, and as I said before, it really requires us to uh, get our act together in a in a much more focused and um, uh, vital way. It seems to me. Well, that might be a good place to take a break and come back and talk about what those actions might be and some of the things that you're actually trying to put into practice. Um, and, uh, and we'll do that right here in PreserveCast. 
Historic preservation can't happen without skilled tradespeople to perform the work, and there's a critical need right now for those tradespeople. The Campaign for Historic Trades, powered by Preservation Maryland, is working to meet that need by strengthening apprenticeship opportunities within historic trades. In partnership with the National Park Service's Historic Preservation Training Center and Conservation Legacy, the campaign is currently recruiting for NPS Traditional Trades Apprenticeship Program, or TTAP. TTAP's an intensive 20-week apprenticeship that provides young adults the chance to learn historic trade skills while working on America's most iconic historic sites. Multiple positions are open for the 2022 season at national parks across the country. Visit historictrades.org for more information on TTAP and how to apply today. This is Nick Redding. You're listening to PreserveCast. We're talking with Charles Henry, who is the president of the Council on Library and Information Resources. We've been talking about his career, what he's done, and, and not only that, but also talking about the work of the council and um, the challenge associated with their work, and in particular, the challenge associated with doing this work in light of a changing climate. Um, before we took our break, we sort of mentioned the, this fact that um, you know, they're just from every different angle. Climate change represents a real challenge when it comes to cultural preservation and the work that you do at the council. So and you, you sort of prefaced it and then ended it by saying we need to, to take quick action and we need to, to do more. What is the council doing? I mean, you've identified the challenge. What are you doing in terms of actually trying to accelerate um, preservation um, in, in, in response to this threat? We are working, I'll, I'll, I'll use one, one project as an example of um, what we're trying to do. And I mean, we're involved with uh, sort of smaller projects uh, in the United States of um, preserving um, uh, marginalized communities or their archives and voices and those are also uh, resources that are under particular threat and uh, and that's to basically through digitization and making those those materials accessible i think um on a on a much larger scale and to your point the work that we've begun with african institutions is uh i think exemplary of 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 what we hope to do and what we hope to do in in collaboration with uh, with many many other individuals and organizations we were approached by a consortium of african libraries uh, a couple of years ago and the uh, inquiry uh, was had to do with uh, a, a couple several interrelated aspects uh and one was that I think 3%, perhaps 4% of what we could term as the cultural heritage of, of the African continent is digitized. So it's a very, very low percentage. Um, a lot of those materials, the digital forms, the digital surrogates are also in places that are difficult to find, you know, even through the internet. Um, and there's a lot of um, falling off of, of, of links, the metadata can uh, become obsolescent very quickly so there's you know even in in the modern era there's there's many many challenges and these challenges are 
uh, exacerbated by climate change. And that was another piece of this uh, this uh, reaching out to us, uh, reaching out to clear. Um, Africa is uh, uh, predicted to be especially hard hit by climate change. There's a tremendous amount of desertification, which is already uh, taking place in the Maghreb and other and other parts. Um, increased wildfires, rising seas. There's many many cities along the coast uh, of of Africa, and so the the uh, the there was a, a, a tremendous amount of urgency in this conversation of could could my organization could clear help assist provide services that could accelerate the digitization of this culture um, in light of the uh, the pending uh, threats and we said yes we would uh, we've had a lot of experience with digitization not on that scale but comparable to you know, the kinds of uh, building communities of practice, building uh, certain uh, protocols, following uh, acceptable standards, and that we felt we could feasibly adapt to a continent-wide effort. So that's where we began, and we've had conversations ongoing now for, for a few years. Uh, we recently signed um, a uh, an MOU with the uh, African Association of Universities, which I think is about 240 uh, institutions in Africa. We also have an MOU with the um, network of uh, research institutes in Africa. So we're all partnering now for this, and uh, we've begun to assess uh, working with dozens of of interested uh, institutions, libraries in particular, and universities, um, what materials they have that they feel is very you know, most important to digitize to help preserve and maintain over time. So I think within the next six months or so, we'll have a list of our initial partners and begin to uh, raise money, serious money, to uh, begin the digitization process. Which we, and it's not just digitization. Um, we're looking at uh, what I call um, social sustainability uh, as part of this, and I hope that this project can be a uh, an example of of a new way of thinking about preservation. Um, in the past, you get a grant, um, get a, a very get a great grant, and from from a great foundation and. There would often be a, a question or a box uh, and so that, that would ask, is this project sustainable? And you'd say, oh, yeah, tick the box. No problem. It's sustainable. And what that usually almost invariably means is that there would be some kind of financial contribution by the institution to the project once the grant funding ran out. So it could be it was largely a, a money a money kind of sustainability. And I, we have found over the years that that's that's not ideal. Um, and, you know, putting a little bit of money into a project once its grant um, is goes away um, doesn't often encourage further innovation. And, and it can, in, in fact, uh, cause a kind of stagnation to the projects. So what we're trying to do with the um, what we would call hidden collections Africa, um, is to uh, do a, a very high quality digitization um, 
of the material in question, but also that it will involve training, on-site training, that the the individuals at these institutions will be trained to not only digitize, but to help preserve the material, to um, contribute to cataloging, to metadata uh, over time. And we're also working with the institutions to um, inculcate using these digitized resources for teaching and for research. So there will be a greater integration into the intellectual life of these institutions, um, both regionally and, and across the continent, and I think eventually across the world. And we're hoping that this the training then goes on and the trainers then train uh, others, and uh, there's a chain of it that, that eventually transcends generations uh, the way that curricular development will transcend and engage new new generations. And so this idea of sustainability is um, it's culturally based and it's socially based. Um, it's not just putting money into a project or keeping a project um, treading water over time, but it's actual um, human uh, engagement of, of mind and heart in this that will we hope make these projects more durable it, it's a it's a fascinating i i'm i'm curious the, what i was thinking as i was hearing this is this is you know this is amazing i think that there's a lot of implications even outside of archival and digitization and collection in terms of long-term sustainability of grant projects and so hopefully uh philanthropists and funders listening take note and can think about ways of um doing this kind of work across the spectrum of preservation, um, because I, I think you're completely right. Normally, sustainability is just perceived as, can you keep paying for this thing? Yeah, um, yeah. here's and, a new check, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but I'm, I'm curious, maybe one question I have as we sort of move to a conclusion here is, so what you, you know, you actually use the word continent-wide, like, you know, I mean, you're talking about continent-scale work. For someone listening who is at a small historic site or a museum or, you know, a small municipality and they're on a much different scale, where do they even start? Right. Because the conversation and the, and the example you just gave is amazing, but like they're not at continent scale and they just don't want to lose the story about their great, great little community. Do you have, does clear or you have something to suggest for that scale of preservation? Um, yes, and uh, I'll, I'll cite another project that's that's underway that tries to address this what we could call sort of more community level challenges and small community level challenges, and um, how we're approaching that at, at the same time trying to um, uh, encourage this these new kinds of concepts for for preservation and, and persistence. Um, we have a a Mellon grant uh, that we're working with the um, historically black colleges and universities, Library Alliance, the HBCUs. And there's a currently an assessment underway to look at uh, resources of some of the selected inst HBCU institutions, the libraries in particular. Um, to see what kind of materials that they have that are particularly valuable and uh, that at some point soon, I hope, to uh, undertake, again, a kind of digitization of these materials. 
uh, with training and with uh, uh, this longer-term kind of durability uh, process in, in mind. Uh, the What we've found so far is not surprising that many of these schools, very small schools, some of them indeed, um, have invaluable community archives. And th that is the record of those communities. And, and these some of these archives go back uh, well over a hundred years. They're unique. Um, they represent voices that are that would otherwise not be heard. They represent the vitality uh, and the dialogue and uh, the life of various communities um, that are at present silent and uh, almost impossible to to find. So, working with the HBCU Library Alliance, working with these institutions, we're hoping to be able to reveal, you know, on on a very small scale, one by one, but something that aggregates into a, a mighty voice at, at some point. Um, information, resources, and insight to our national narrative. So this is primarily storytelling, uh, storytelling at its best, um, where the various stories can eventually accrue into what what I hope would be a, a new national narrative or a much richer understanding of of our country and our and our place in it. So that's um, that's a a related project uh, that has a you know ostensibly a, a smaller focus, but but is we hope is can be organized and built uh, into something that is much more encompassing and. Uh, um, uh, enriching. Well, I feel like we just scratched the surface of of what Clear does, and and we'll put a link in the show notes for people to learn more about them and about right. your organization and how they can get more engaged and find out about these projects. And if they're an HBCU, how perhaps they can reach out and engage around that. Um, before we go, we always ask people if they have a favorite historic place or site. Oh, okay. Um, Good question. Um, well, let me let me be candid. Something something does come to mind, and uh, it, it's it. This may, Jesus, uh, this, this may sound like a dodge, but I don't think it is. Um, I had the uh, opportunity to meet um, a very well known Middle East artist um, uh, recently, uh, Oded Halloway, um, and he does these great sculptures he does a lot of big sculptures um and he's also a historian he's involved with the restoring historical sites uh especially in iraq he's iraqi by birth um, um and has uh had to leave iraq because of the persecutions and someone asked him uh what uh what what country does does he identify with because he's been so mobile and uh, does he have, uh, does he consider, you know, a particular place, as your question suggests, is there something that's very important or a place that's very important, suggestive to him? And he said he feels that he's part of four countries, very much a part equally of four countries. One is Iraq, one is Israel, uh, and one is the United States. He has a place in New York City. The fourth is, he said, the imagination. And he was, uh, he's been very articulate about the imagination as a place, uh, a place where different perspectives can can play out without uh, polarization. 
where various ideas can live and and uh, and prosper, a, a place of serenity and energy, a place of of possibilities. Um, in his in his terms, the imagination encompasses history. It encompasses historical sites, and it also allows you to 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 look ahead. So I would say, um, tagging on to Odette Holloway's uh, 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 insight, that the imagination right now is the place is is a, a historic place for me, um, where so much can be done and so much can be. Um, f- figuratively and and at least theoretically uh, put into put into action, um, and it's also a place I would encourage all of us to frequent um, more and more. That is a that fantastic answer, and definitely the most unique answer we've ever received for that question. So um, we uh, we appreciate that, and I think that's a, a good place for people to stop and think. Um, and really appreciate having you on and sharing this story um, and the good work that you guys are doing at Clear and look forward to catching up with you again in the future. Thanks, Nick. It's been a, a privilege and a pleasure and greatly appreciate it. Thanks for listening to PreserveCast. To dig deeper into this episode's story, head over to preservecast.org for show notes and our collection of previous episodes. Don't forget to engage with this podcast by subscribing, commenting, and leaving a review. Follow along on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at PreserveCast for even more. PreserveCast is currently recorded in Walkersville, Maryland, and sponsored by the 1772 Foundation and powered by Preservation Maryland. Thanks for listening and keep on preserving.